Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Many of you might have watched the documentary that was on Virgin Media uh, going back uh, only a few weeks ago, actually, Confessions of a Crime Boss. And it was about the former crime boss, John Gilligan, where he discussed, you know, his infamous stint in the Irish underworld, including, of course, his trial for the murder and crime journalist, Rana Gagarin. And for those of you who don't remember, and most of you should, of course, Rana Gagarin was an investigative journalist focused on organised crime in the Republic of Ireland. And on the evening of the 25th of June, 1996, Gilligan, uh, drug gang members, Charles Bowden, Brian Meehan, Kieran Muscles, Concanon, uh, Peter Mitchell and Paul Ward met at their distribution premises in Greenmount Industrial Estate. Bowden, the gang's distributor and ammunition quartermaster supplied their supplied them with three with the three of them with a Colt Python revolver loaded with a three fifty seven Magnum uh, semi uh, wad cutter bullets. On the twenty sixth of June nineteen ninety six, while driving her red Opal Calibra, Veronica Gearin stopped at the red light at the Nace Jewel carriageway near Newlands Cross on the outskirts of Dublin, unaware that she was even being followed. Now she was shot fatally by one of the two men sitting on a motorcycle. About an hour after Hiram was murdered, a meeting took place in Moor Street between Bowden, me and Mitchell. Bowden later denied under oath in court that the purpose of the meeting was the disposable, uh, disposal of the weapon, but rather that it was an excuse uh, to appear in a public setting uh, place for them to be away from the incident. At the time of the murder, of course, uh, John Trainer uh, was seeking a high court order against Veronica Guerin to prevent her from publishing a book about his involvement in organised crime and Veronica Guerin was killed two days before she was due to speak at a Freedom Forum conference in London. And the topic of her segment was dying to tell the story. Journalists at risk, ironically enough. Well, a man who did those interviews, if you watch that documentary on Virgin Media, it was based on the interviews carried out by Jason O'Toole. And Jason O'Toole is one of Ira's best authors, interviewers, and uh, also a newspaper columnist as well in his time. And his book is called The Gilligan Tapes. Uh, Ireland's most notorious crime boss, in his own words, uh, by Jason O'Toole, and he joins me on the line. Jason, good evening to you. Hi, Niall. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice to talk to you again. And Jason, you have got so many compliments in relation to this book, because, and I know you for a long time, Jason, we've, we've spoken many, many times, and you have this way of interviewing people, which I admire greatly, which gets the best out of people. Uh, in other words, you know, slowly bringing them in and befriending them to some degree, I suppose, to get that all, all that information out of them. Firstly, I suppose <laughs> the most important thing is, why did you want to, why John Gilligan in particular? Did, did you have a huge interest in, in the underworld and what had happened to Veronica Guerin? Well, it wasn't so much to do with, with Veronica, but definitely I had a fascination with the underworld going back to the late 90s. And um, when, do you remember the film The General came out, the John Borman film? Yes, yeah, yeah, great yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, and after I watched that movie, I, I, I realized, like, walked out of the cinema, the voice in a man, I said to myself, you don't actually see interviews with these characters. You read a lot about them in the papers, but you never see in-depth interviews with them themselves. Uh, there was a couple in Hot Press, um, one with Martin Cattle, and I think Miguel had one with Martin Cattle too. And apart from that, I hadn't really seen any other articles. So uh, I decided when I joined Hot Press, I, I wanted to go out and do these type of interviews, interview, you know, Dutchy Holland. Fatpuss, uh, Gilligan, um, Christy Bronco Dunn, all these type of characters, you know. And um, how it came about was originally I interviewed Gilligan for um, in for Hot Press in 2008. 
uh, when he was in Portleash Prison. And how I got that interview was uh, I flew over to Rome to meet um, the guy that was uh, representing him, Giovanni mm-hmm. Stefano. You might remember him. Yes, I, I do remember the name, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, he, he represented a rogues gallery of people like Carol Shipman and Chemical Ali and Saddam Hussein and Dutchie Holland and Gilligan. And it turned out he was actually not a qualified bar, uh, solicitor. And uh, he ended up doing uh, 10 years in London, in an uh, wow. English prison for fraud. <laughs> and uh, Jim Terrence <laughs> makes a documentary about him at the moment. But anyway, right. to cut a long story short, I went over and interviewed him for Hot Press and he liked the interview. And when I was leaving him uh, in Rome at the time, I said, any chance of an interview with your client, Gilligan? And he said, leave with me. And I never thought I'd hear from him again. And then about two or three months later, he phoned me from Baghdad and said, uh, that interview is being set up. You're on the guest list, so to speak. You can go into Portlaoise Prison and interview Gilligan. And I did that interview. We ran it across Turkey. And what's, and the, what's the legalities of that? Because I know... There, are, there have been instances throughout time, you know, where somebody has committed maybe a serious crime, where a judge would say that you're not allowed to do any interviews, you're not allowed to profit from this, you're not allowed, you know. So, is there any restrictions around interviewing, you know, what they consider to be a serious criminal? Well, at that stage, that that interview caused a lot of controversy, and the the then Minister for Justice, Dermot uh, uh, O'Hearn, uh, demanded an investigation into how I got the interview. I had signed myself in as a guest. Uh, to do it, and uh, subsequently, Hot Press magazine was banned from the prison system over it. Okay, it was ridiculous. all right, okay. Because I suppose so, some people would suggest, and I'm not suggesting it obviously because I work in media, but some people would suggest that you're glamorizing crime. What do you say to those people who say that? Oh, no, definitely not glamorizing crime. I mean, I believe that future historians and criminologists will use it, you know, the book, the Gilligan Tape, as a primary source when they're writing about crime in Ireland in, you know, in the latter stages of the mm. 20th century, because we're hearing it from the horse's mouth. We're hearing how criminals think, how they speak, you know, their overall ad- attitudes to criminality. So in that sense, I think it's a very valuable exercise. And my hope is also that if younger readers or viewers uh, from working class or deprived backgrounds who might be vulnerable to getting involved in crime, that the book would actually steer them away from the life of crime. Because even Gilligan said it himself repeatedly in the book, you know, crime does not pay. And at the, in the last page of the book, he says I, he was urging young readers not to get involved in criminality, that he felt he wasted his life. And, um, you know, well, he, did, well, he didn't feel like that at the time. But, but, but getting back to it, so when you met him this time around, where did you meet him for these particular recordings that obviously all this was based on, both the book and the documentary? Where did you meet him? Um, in a place called Torre Vieja, uh, outside of Alicante, on, on, um, in Spain, uh, seaside uh, resort town. Mm-hmm. Um, how it came about was, uh, I I'd met Gilligan after he got out of prison in 2013, and we talked initially then about the idea of uh, me doing a book on him, but he wouldn't admit to being a drug dealer or in, uh, his drug operation, because at the time, he had an ongoing case with CAB and he wasn't going to admit to that. So I, I kind of thought to myself... Uh, that would that'd be a waste of time. Him, yeah, yeah, it'd be like interviewing Neil Armstrong and not asking him about and the movement. No, no, no. not talking about the movement. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. of course. And by the way, of course, we have to remember, for those that don't know, he served the longest sentence in Irish history uh, for drugs. Um, because yeah. obviously, because the underlying problem that was around this whole case, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. So when you sat down to meet him, I mean, firstly, what sort of person... Is he? I mean, most of us would have a fear of a man like Gilligan, particularly if we've seen the movie, by the way, because he comes across in the movie and played very well, by the way, uh, in the movie. But he comes across as being, you know, aggressive, arrogant, um, you know, and some sort of narcissist. So what sort of individual was he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
isn't the, the, the film is the, the, the guy who played him in the film is, is, is a brilliant actor, but um, Gilligan didn't come across that way to me. That's kind of a, I suppose, a cartoon version of him, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a character really. Um, look, he's he's a, he's he's an intelligent guy, and you know, he's a he's a he's a charming guy. He's resourceful. But with John, everything is really about the bottom line. He's not some sort of working-class Robin Hood hero, you know? He's not a helpless victim of fate no. or society. It's, it's, the book is not a sob story. He had plenty of opportunities to walk away from a life of crime, and he admits that. Uh, you know, by his own confession, he chose to be a criminal. Uh, he chose to act in this manner. But, you know, he did his best to put me at ease because uh, he knew... I, I was a bit apprehensive to say the least about me and him. Well, you would but be, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he did put, you know, he did do his best to put me at ease. Uh, I remember when he came into, the, I had booked a room for a week uh, um, to to do the interviews, and when he came into the room, he started um, joking about how he wished he still had it in him to steal the cameras. You know? <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Well, okay, let's let's go back to his early days, and, and I yeah. just kind of glancing through the book. He sent me the book, by the way. It's an amazing yeah. book. But and, and there's some a lot of it, by the way, because for most of us, what we know about John Gilligan and Veronica Guerin, of course, sadly, is what we've seen in the movie. Because a lot of us would 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 have seen the movie, and so we we look at parts of the movie, and then there are parts of the movie which are in the book, so to speak, but in real life, if you know what I mean. And his version of what actually happened, for example, he talks about the time where she came up to the door and knocking on the door, and he was accused mm-hmm. of assault when he tore her dress, her blouse and all that, and he, of course, disputes you know, the version that's in the movie and says it wasn't like that at all. Now, that's entirely up to who you happen to believe. Unfortunately, Veronica's not with us anymore, so can't give her version. But going back to his youth, you know, he was a ga- he had a gambling addiction at a very young age. Do you think that's what started or kicked off this life of criminality to pay for the gambling addiction? Because he was one of the first people probably with a mobile phone and, you know, his friends would say he was constantly on the phone, you know, putting on bets. Yeah, I mean, and he, he tells me in the book that he reckons he gambled at least 20 million pumps during his life mm. and lost it. A phenomenal amount of money. But it, it goes back earlier than just the gambling with him. Uh, but the gambling is a big part of it, definitely, and he admits that. Um, you see, about Gilligan, you, you mentioned there about the Veronica Guerin thing, and, and uh, uh, the previous books that have, have been written about him or about her, they, they, they haven't really been able to go in-depth into his life before he became an infamous, an infamous criminal. Uh, there's not much backstory known about him. So in the book, he's, he's given a lot of length to talk about and uh, his, his life of, uh, before he became a criminal and his life of crime in the early days. And I think that's really one of the most fascinating parts of the book. But he says that his first crime was when he was nine years old because um, he was um, selling firewood door to door. Uh, in mm-hmm. Valley Fairman and Palmerstown, because his father was, um, in, you know, w- was never putting food on the table. He was a small-time criminal. He was off drunk all the time, or off gambling himself, and there was no, there was no money in the house. And you know, they had a huge family. Um, yeah. So he said, at nine years old, he was going off, and he had, he was pushing a pram around, selling firewood door to door. But one day, a, a woman said to him, "Then, yeah, I'll buy four or five bundles off you. Here's a fiver. Do you have change?" And he said. My dad will have changed at the corner. I'll go get it. And he said he left the pram at the door and he ran. And uh, he said he, he never he never looked back. That was his first crime, and he just kept going. Um, so then, when he was fourteen or fifteen, he dropped out of school and he joined. Um, he, he he had a life. He, he went to a life of sea. Then at that stage, he worked at the BNI first, and then he became a merchant seaman. And he he said what had happened is he he docked at Liverpool. And with his wage for the month, 
go in and gamble and lose it all in an hour. And uh, he'd have to go back on a ship for a month or six weeks to make up money again. And he said the second time this happened, again, he'd lost all of his money and he was sleeping on a park bench one night. And the cops woke him up and said, you can't sleep here. And he went down the road for a ramble and he hooked up with this gang that were breaking into a, a jeweler's shop and um, started breaking into different shops with them. And that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how he really started to get into criminality uh, from, from that point. And then he said yeah. he went home and somebody said to him, you know, he was robbed, ducking and diving at that stage. And someone said, well, do you fancy robbing the bank? And he said, how much will I get? And they said, five or six grand. And he said, okay, count me in. So that's how he got into bank robberies. I, he His biggest robbery, according to himself, um, was unusually... Um, Ferguson VHS recorders. Uh, seemingly, according to the book, anyway, he made a million quid out of selling these yeah. stolen Ferguson VHS recorders. Yeah, that was a famous story back in the eighties. That um, and it's kind of a funny story in in some ways. Uh, it shows his sense of humour. Um, he 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 robbed all these VHS machines worth a million pound, and he went in and bought one, and they were roughly around a thousand pounds each to buy at the time. Yeah. And he went in and bought one and put the receipt underneath it. So when the cops raided his house, they'd see the machine and then they turn it upside down and see the receipt so he could have a laugh at them. Oh, right. So, okay, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was doing that type of, type of carry I, on. He, when did he get married, by the way? When did he marry Geraldine? Oh, um, when she felt... Pre- she, they first met when she was 14, but he thought she was 16 years old. And then I think when she was about nineteen, um, they she got they got married, uh, and then five or six months later, their first child was born. And then he, do, he does he does say in the book later, that he kind of that he kept her kind of in the dark in relation to the life of crime. Now, he said she was aware of the cigarettes and all that kind of stuff, right? But that that he kind of kept her in the dark pretty much in, the, in relation to the crimes that he was involved in. Do you believe that? Well, he is a very secretive character. Uh, for example, when I conducted all these interviews with him in Torre Vieta. Uh, it took me nearly a year to, to do it. And I did over 40 hours of interviews on videotape and another 20 to 30 hours on audio tape. He never told anyone. Uh, his partner, Sharon, didn't even know there was um, a documentary and a book coming down the tracks. And he, he asked me, listen, tell me a day before it's going to be announced so I can tell it my family. And I told him that. And then he rang them up all that night, that night and said, you know, this is going to be announced tomorrow. So mm-hmm. he, he is a very secretive character. He doesn't tell anybody anything unless he, he always says he needs to know basis. I mean, in a couple of occasions, he tried to go straight. You talk about the book at one stage in 1978, he mm-hmm. decided to go straight. How long did that last? Well, I think he lasted about a year at that time. He tried a few different times, but that was the time I think he bought the garage, uh, or that mm-hmm. was in the early 80s, where he, but he claimed he got harassed by the guards. And uh, he decided to get back into a life of crime. Yeah. So, but he admits, as I said, like he does admit, it's not a sob story. You know, he did yeah. have plenty of opportunities to walk away from it. But he talks at great length about getting a great buzz out of stealing. Um, you know, but he said ultimately he did it for the money. Where Martin Cattle would just the general would steal just for a buzz. He said, but yeah. for for him he got he, he got a high out of it in the sense that. Uh, he loved knowing that all the factories were there, and in his, and in his mind, he owned everything in these factories. Did you ever? So, did you ask him at all? Did he ever think of the victims of his crimes? Oh yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, and um, you know, I said to him, 
I, I pointed out to him, you know, about insurance and different things like that would go up because of the, yeah. of his criminality. People but, lose their jobs, yeah, yeah, etc. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I pointed all that out to him. The questions are pretty hard in the book, you know. And he he, he just said, like, as far as he was concerned, uh, he, he would offer to sell the, the stolen goods back to the guys, whoever he stole it from, a, a, disc, a major discount. And if they didn't want to, sure, they'd get the insurance. And the, that was his attitude. He didn't think any, he didn't think further than that. Do you think? Do you think the criminal mind, like his, operates differently to a standard person's mind? Like when when you were talking to him, did you get that impression that that he didn't get social cues, or he lacked empathy, or or did he have empathy? Oh no, he, he comes across as um, he has empathy definitely, but you can see the eyes going over time, and he, mm. he just thinks in a different in a in a different direction than you and I would think. Uh, He's he's probably you know got uh, he's he's thinking about ten different things at the same time. I always feel. And and at any stage, we would he have been conscious? Do you think when he was talking to you over God knows how many hours you sat talking to him, and and there's hours and hours, of course, of recordings that are all uh, mm. documented in the book, by the way. But did did he at any stage did you get the impression he was holding back because of maybe legal reasons? I better not admit to that, or I better not admit to this, or. Or I better not mention that person in case they shaft me. Or what, did you get the impression he was holding back at any stage? In, initially, in the in the early days, and he said, you know, I can't incriminate myself here, but I can talk about every case I was charged for. But then, the more I, I started to talk to him, the more he started to open up, and he started to reveal things that he didn't have to reveal. I mm. mean, he, he got very honest at one stage. He talks about assaulting his ex-wife Geraldine. When I asked yeah. him, did he ever hit her? And he said, yes. I think. Yeah. The majority of people just that that the uh, you know wife beers or whatever you want to call them would would deny that you know yeah they, yeah they would they wouldn't admit that and then he he, ta- he started to admit to other things like um you know Dutchie Holland um was a hit man he told me um so he, he got very frank I'm sure there's things he didn't want to talk about but and um, I I did ask him questions in the book like for example the time uh, he was shot six times and left for dead did did he receive any compensation. From the, the people that tried to put the hit out on him, and he said, yeah. "I'm not going into that. I'm not talking about that." So those answers. So there were moments where he pulled back a bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So mm. and that's all covered, you know, very well in in the book. Now um, I, I want to get to obviously Veronica Gearin, uh, because mm. of course that would be the one thing that everybody would know John Gilligan for, mm. and of course you know as well as I do now at this stage the family Veronica Gearin's family have criticised the documentary and they said it was insensitive, and obviously they will criticise your work and say that it's insensitive. How do you feel about that? Does did, did that was that were you conscious of that? You know, both writing the book and and playing a part, obviously, in the documentary as well, because the book played a part. Of it. Were you conscious yeah, of that? Yeah. Look, I mean, there's, in an early chapter in the book, Gilligan, uh, the first chapter on Flanagan in the book, Gilligan said something about her, that, and I and I and I have in my notes in the book that I didn't even bother. Uh, transcribe in his answer because I just felt it was too insensitive. So I was, mm. you know, I have huge sympathy for the family. Look, the producer on the documentary, his name is David Harvey. Uh, I know, I know David of, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's on the board of RTE. But, you know, since the age of 19, he was a very close friend of Veronica's. And in mm. fact, during the first meeting I had with him, he showed me a picture of himself with Veronica. So he would never set out to desecrate the memory of someone you know he respected know. and valued as a friend. For those, for those who don't remember, Dave Harvey was actually on, he used to be on RT television on Crime Line, so he was yeah, very yeah. much involved in, and against crime. And Dave, by the way, used to be a presenter at this radio station at one stage, uh, go back about ten years ago. So he actually yeah. did the daytime show that I then went on to do. So um, oh, 
yeah, I know David very well. He's a really nice yeah. guy, and and I, and I he would be very conscious of that. I would be aware that he'd be a very very professional man and the way he deals with things. So, yeah, but yeah. of course, but of course, you you did hear the criticisms of the family, and it was all over the papers that the family weren't too pleased with the documentary after the first one was screened. It went over three three weeks, obviously the first one. They weren't very happy about it. Yeah, and they didn't criticize. Nobody seems to have criticized the book. Um, no, no. Which I think speaks volumes about that. But look, David, like me, we wanted to get Gilligan to finally speak on the record about his life of crime and dissect what he had to say for himself. You know. And, yeah. and he just makes some startling revelations in the book. Stuff that, yeah. you know, he talks about tampering with evidence in, co- in a courtroom, stealing evidence and things like that. So I think from that perspective, it's really a worthy project. You know, you're, you're giving the guy enough lo- rope to let him do the job himself type of thing. But the one thing that really kind of struck me as silly uh, was before the first episode aired and the, even before the book had hit the shops, um, you know, three government ministers, including the Minister for Drugs and the Minister for Justice, uh, before they'd even seen the episode, uh, they they were criticising it, you know. And I felt like I was trapped in an episode of Father Ted with down with this sort of thing mantra. And, I, you know, I wondered if they believe in free speech, you know. Yeah. Um, we didn't glorify crime in the in the book. We didn't do it in the documentary. No, I, I, I've read the book and, I, and it doesn't mm. glorify crime because mm. it's quite clear that John Gilligan knew what he was doing was wrong. And it was quite mm. clear that with, with the questions that you asked him, by the way, they're just in, some of the questions are intriguing. But it's quite clear mm. from the questions that you asked him that you condemned everything that he did throughout his life of crime, and that it was a warning to young people not to get involved in crime. But but let's let's just go back if we can to mm. he, he obviously talked to you in detail about what happened uh, on that fateful day, and and obviously the day before as well. Now he seemed to be pinning it and pinning everything on Bowden. Um, yeah. Do, do you believe him? I do on that. I always, my hunch w- always had been that Bowden was the hitman uh, from when I first interviewed Gilligan in 2008 and then due to 2013 because I put that question to him then at the time and he shut up. He wouldn't talk about it at the time. And look, B- Bowden was in the army uh, and he had, he, he had become, I think he had won a lot of, prizes for uh, his marksmanship in the army, uh, you know, shooting competitions. And I asked Gilligan, why did Bowden, like Bowden confessed to loading the gun to the guards. And I asked uh, Gilligan, why would he, would he even do that? And Gilligan said, because they, he, he was actually afraid they had found the gun and they would have seen his fingerprints on it. Um, so that's, that's why he came up with that story. So, mm-hmm. And also, Brian Mean, uh, one of the reasons Brian Mean didn't do the shooting, wasn't the hitman, was because he had previously uh, attempted to kill someone twice um, and missed, missed twice. I mean, shot him at cl- close range, the guy lived, and then missed him the second time. So they, they said, that, you know, there's no way he was, go- he was going to be the hitman, so they had to get somebody else to do it. And everybody has always thought it was Dutchie Holland, and I interviewed Dutchie Holland myself. But a nine witness at the scene actually uh, had described a, a younger person as being the passenger on, on the bike. And, you know, Dutchie has... A well, it would be hard to tell. They were, they were wearing helmets, so I suppose it would have been yeah. reasonably hard to tell. Yeah, but you would have seen the broken nose, I think, on Dutchie. Yeah. That would have stood yeah. out, because he had a, he had a, a very prominent... Uh, he did, yeah, broken he did. nose. But, it, you know, Gilligan... But, but did Gilligan... Dutchie was a hitman. When you were when you were talking to Gilligan, his involvement in this, of course, he denied all involvement in it at the time. Mm. But his his involvement in this, did he admit his involvement in it? No, he, Gilligan is adamant that this was done behind his back, that he had no con- control over it all, and he 
he, he blames trainer on it all because as you pointed out in the introduction to this interview uh, trainer had an injunction against uh, Veronica Gearan at the time yeah, where a book she was reading yes. yeah. uh, an article actually from the Sunday Independent uh, I think there might maybe she was going to do a book too but she had told trainer she was going to print in the Sunday Independent that he was a, a heroin dealer which mortified him and Gilligan says in the book that uh, trainers' kids played with their neighbours' kids who happened to be uh, the guards, uh, either both the parents or one of the parents. And then um, he, he was mortified that this was, you know, going to destroy his life. So, But, but, wait, wait, but when, when you say that, you know, he wouldn't admit his involvement, the world and his mother knows that he was involved in it. And, you know, and the, well, courts, the courts knew he was involved in it. That's why he got such a long sentence for, you know, for drugs. I mean, everybody... <laughs> knows that he was obviously, you know, the leader of that gang, so to speak, or he was the head yeah, honcho. Yeah. So, so I mean, to suggest that he wasn't involved seems bizarre, doesn't it? Well, he claims that they all went rogue in him, and uh, this was done behind his back. So that's that's his version of events, you know. Um, you know, it mm. really is for others to judge his, his actions. I'm not a prosecution barrister or a defence barrister, you know. I'm not a judge. I merely gather the facts uh, or the quotes and put the interviews together, you know, and mm. hopefully give the subjects enough rope to hang themselves, you know. Uh, yeah. I think that the deeds describe the man, in, um, you know, he doesn't, he, I think the Irish Times even said he didn't come out of, uh, out of well the documentary, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, my motives were out of curiosity. Gilligan himself, his motives were for doing the documentary or the, and the book was, you know, he's 71 years of age. By his own admission, he probably doesn't have many years left, you know. And um, what did he say know, about Veronica? By the way, Do, I'm I'm sure you asked him about the relationship he had with Veronica Guerin because she was an investigative journalist who made his life yeah. difficult. There's no doubt about that. She made his life that's, difficult, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's her job. Uh, and and by the way, he deserves to have his life made difficult because he's a criminal. So mm-hmm. what did he say about his relationship with her and the way that relationship was portrayed, particularly in the movie, which we'd be all familiar with? Um, was the movie yeah. accurate in the way they portrayed that relationship? Well, everything Gilligan told me is is, 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 is the 180 degrees opposite of, of what we've, we've been told. Um, his, his version of events is that she was doorstepping him that day because she was she want, she was writing a movie and she wanted to get information out of him about uh, uh, criminality. Um, so that's his version, uh, where everybody's, you know, the, the long-standing version of events has been that she doorstepped him, um, you know, to find out how the hell he could afford all this, uh, you know, the mm. equestrian centre and everything, when he's apparently meant to be on the doll. Yeah. Um, you know, so even when I said, you know, what was your reaction when she, when she was shot? He said he didn't care. That's how blunt he was. He said it would it'd be no different from hearing if a U.S. president had been shot. But he did care. And we all know he cared because what he, happened was, of course, when she was shot, and the only positive thing to come out of that, because it was such a sad loss to society, was that it put the limelight on Gilligan and his gang and every other person in the underworld. So in other words, the focus was suddenly on them. Cab were suddenly in, came along and yeah. start taking all their possessions off them. So it had a huge impact on them. And he knew that was going to happen. He must have known. He wasn't stupid. Yeah, and um, he always a cab is one of the things that'll annoy him because he'll he, he'd repeatedly say, and he repeatedly says in the book, cab was not set up, set up over it because of him. Um, you know that. Well, it was set up over his gang. It was his gang. Yeah, Ninety six cab came in. I do know that 
in 19... I, I, I find it unbelievable, time. Jason, that he won't take any responsibility considering the gang no, were he his. He can, well, he can say they've gone rogue all he wants, but they were his gang. You know yeah, what I mean? He, he doesn't take any responsibility. He doesn't, he, there's no other way for me to put it. It's mm. just, that, that's his reaction and it's, it's really down to, that's his comment and it's really down to the reader to make up their own mind. Of course, yeah. yeah what yeah, you want yeah. to believe, you know? Mm. Well, look, I have to say, Jason, it's a brilliant book, an absolutely amazing book. Um, I think it's intriguing. I think for anybody who has an interest, I suppose, in the criminal underworld, it's an intriguing book. I think it's a good lesson for any young person who might read it to show that a life of crime certainly doesn't pay. Um, and it never will. I mean, John Gilligan is constantly, as it, well, only recently he was back in court again in Spain, wasn't he? Um, yeah. And yeah. Mind you, he got away lightly this time as well. Very lightly. Yeah. I think a lot, yeah, a lot I mean, of people would have liked to see him go to jail again. Yeah, he got a suspended sentence for having... Um, the possession of a handgun and um, drugs. It's. I, I was really. Do you think he'd ever stop? That. Is he ever going to stop? I think that really frightened him recently because I had put it to him. I said, like, you know, when you're a younger guy doing four or five years in prison is, is probably no big deal for you, you know. Uh, but when you're in your seventies, I said to him, one year in, uh, is akin to seven years of a dog's life, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that rattled him a bit. And um, does he still have money? He still, he still has plenty of money, doesn't he? Look, uh, I don't believe he has much money. He 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 was actually where he was the, the day he got out of prison. He had a grey suit on, and the day I met him uh, to do the inter- start doing the interviews last year, he was wearing the same suit uh, with the with the buttons broken on it. Uh, I couldn't see any um, money there. You know, um, he, he is addicted to gambling, and he still gambles a lot, but. It's cheaper over there in, in Torrevieja to have an, a, a decent enough lifestyle. I mean, you, you, you get a villa over there for half the price of a box room in Dublin at this stage, you know? Yeah, it's about to get away for it, yeah. 550 yeah. a month or 600 a month, you get a, a villa over there with swimming pool in Torrevieja. Well, well, I'm sure he'll spend so, his last day. He'll spend his last days there, his last years of his life there, probably. He won't be back, you know? Well, he, he says to me that he's going to leave Spain. Mm. And that's why he's telling me now because he's he's on a suspended sentence and he's afraid that if there's another any kind of slip up or if some you know he's he's kind of paranoid thinking that somebody might try to frame him for something and he'll end up you know just doing time he, behind bars then. Does he have enemies? He says he doesn't. Um, mm. You know he's walking around freely in Torrefia here. Uh, uh, I've I've mm. you know followed him around the town uh, to see what type of, you know, his day-to-day activity would be like. He showed me where he socialised. He showed me the, the casinos and the the bookies he likes to go to. And, um, you know, he, he walks around freely over there. Uh, he doesn't mm. get recognised that much either. It's, 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 it's a well, town full not. of, um, to, uh, you know, Germans and Russians and Ukrainian tourists, uh, not tourists, you know, refugees and um, English tourists. And, there's, yeah, there is a lot of Irish, but he seems to stay away from the, the Irish bars, you know? Well, yeah, but, but, but before we finish up too, I do want to obviously uh, remember the sad loss of Veronica Gearin and everybody, of course, when we talk about John Gilligan, we'll associate the two certainly together uh, because yeah. if John Gilligan didn't exist, as far as I'm concerned, and his gang didn't exist, uh, Veronica Gearin would be still with us today. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, most journalists around the country, I mean, and I suppose too, you, Jason, when you're involved in that kind of investigation at those kind of interviews, do, do you ever worry about that, that aspect of it? Um, not these days. Probably I did in the past when... Uh, about 15 years ago, I interviewed over 
uh, over a dozen criminals in-depth interviews for hot press, and there was a few uh, dodgy moments. But um, the the one thing I'll say is, I mean, there's a few chapters on on the book about Frank again. Writing those chapters up, you know, did upset me, thinking about how a journalist died trying to um, just do her job. But the, the book is not really about her. No, it's it's about about his life. Yeah, Yeah, of course, but that is part of it as well, obviously. Yeah, of course. But look, again, the book is called The Gilligan Tapes, Ireland's Most Notorious Crime Boss in His Own Words by Jason O'Toole. Jason, listen, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking to us. Uh, I appreciate it. It's not an easy subject to talk about, and I appreciate that. And it certainly wasn't an easy interview to do, I imagine, as well. But I mean, how many hours, by the way, of those tapes did you have? Um, 40 hours and video and more than 20 hours on audio so over mm. 60 hours in total and when is that all going to be released will it well the, the book is out now um and and the documentary has, has already been on uh, there's a possibility i might do something else with the material in the future perhaps another book yeah. or perhaps a podcast or you never yeah. know even in, another documentary but i'm sure something else will happen in the future but at, at the moment i'm just trying to plug the book as much as possible Okay. Well, listen, I appreciate that. Listen, thank you very much, Jason O'Toole. There you go. There's uh, Jason O'Toole, the author, and the book is called The Gilligan Tapes. It is a very, I've read the book. uh, Well, most of it, actually, I haven't got quite to the end of it. Um, But it is an interesting book. It is interesting to see how somebody could get themselves involved in a life of crime and how that can happen. Um, You know, the one part, obviously, and even Jason talks about the fact that he doesn't take any personal responsibility. He doesn't seem to want to take personal responsibility, but then that's the mind of a criminal, isn't it? And I'd certainly appreciate um, the family when they say they believe that, you know, for the documentary or the book or everything, well, they didn't mention the book, but certainly the documentary can be deemed as insensitive. I suppose that depends on who you are. Um, Obviously, if you're related to Veronica Guerin, I could completely understand that. And our memories do stick with Veronica Guerin and the loss of a wonderful journalist, an amazing journalist, because of John Gilligan's gang. Uh, We will never know the truth. I don't believe we'll ever know exactly what happened on that day, that fateful day, on the 25th of June, 1996. Um, but, or should I say, 26th of June, 1996. But certainly, we do know that it was John Gilligan's gang, although he will sick with his word and say that he personally wasn't responsible, that the gang went rogue. Isn't that always been the story? And that's why, at the time, when he was got on a drugs charge, he got one of the highest sentences in the history of the state for a drugs charge because they couldn't get him on anything else. Anyway, thank you very much to Jason for coming on and talking about the book. It's called The Gilligan Tapes, Ireland's Most Notorious Crime Boss. And you'll find it in all the usual places, Amazon, all the usual bookshops, etc, etc. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio, the multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show.